0: Hello everybody and welcome to this week's Twice Removed. Um, I'm Natalie in case you haven't met me before. I run a business called Genealogy Stories and I'm uh, really passionate about writing your family history and I think in order to write it you need to know some historical context. So I spend every other Tuesday interviewing all sorts of different historians always with a family history slant and today I'm uh, joined by a previous guest who um, gave me a masterclass in charterism which is one of my all-time favourite interviews from History. so I'm really delighted to be back. <laughs> Hi Mark, would you mind introducing you to anyone who hasn't met you before?
1: Sure, hi. Um, No pressure then
0: Natalie.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for having me back on. Um, So um, I'm the author of a a family history book called um, Tracing Your Leg Movement Ancestors, um, which came out 10 years ago now, 12 years (laughs) ago now. (laughs) Um, Although the history obviously hasn't changed in it, Things, things like the links and so forth probably don't work anymore, but the the history is the same. Um, I've written for a number of uh, family history magazines about trade union history, uh, some of which are now defunct, the magazines, but um, I don't think that was entirely my fault. Um, <laughs> and, and many years ago, I, I, I actually worked for a trade union for, for a few years as, as editor of their uh, magazine, because um, I'm, I'm a journalist by trade. Um, so that's me uh, and my connection with, with trade union history.
0: And you also have a brilliant Chartism website. <laughs> <So good. laughs> uh, yes, that's very up to date.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I wasn't mentioning Chartism. We've done Chartism, <laughs> but
0: yeah, that's that, that's the
1: sort of um, yeah that 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 is a, a topic I really enjoy and, and do a lot of work on. Partly because I've got sort of family history in in that myself. Um, so um, ChartistAncestors.co.uk is, is worth a look if people are interested in that
0: okay great so um just to remind people as well if you want to come and and ask questions please feel free at any time to pop them in the comments box and i'll do my best to get them up on screen um so mark can we start right at the very beginning what is a trade union
1: (laughs) 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 right so it's i mean you know it's these things you sort of think oh yeah i know what a trade union is or i know Mm -hmm. what is then actually if you sit down you think well actually how do i define it what is it um, so I did look at what other people had said a trade union was um, and actually the best definition I came up with um, was one that was written by Sydney and Beatrice Webb um, who are historians way back at the sort of end of the 19th beginning of the 20th century and the first serious historians of trade unionism uh, and their definition if I can sort of break it down into the bits as we go through it is only one sentence but there's quite a lot packed into there um, so it's a continuous association of wage earners so a continuous association it, it means it's sort of an ongoing thing. It's not just a one-off that sort of comes together for a particular cause or particular issue and then dissolves and disappears off. Um, of wage earners, so you know, workers, people are employed. Um, I mean, these days the definition is a bit broader because we've got people working for sort of the likes of Uber and so forth, where um, there's much dispute about whether they are wage earners or contractors or whatever. But the broad broad principle is the same: continuous association of wage earners. Uh, for the purpose of maintaining or improving the conditions of their employment, okay. so partly it's so maintaining or improving. So partly it's defensive; it's about being there to try to prevent things getting worse, uh, whether that's pay cuts or, or um, health and safety issues, uh, and or improving. So hopefully, you know, earning more or um, uh, getting better working conditions, shorter hours, and so forth, um, and conditions of employment. Well. We know what those are: um, pay, working hours, all those sorts of things. So, a continuous association of wage earners for the purpose of maintaining or improving the conditions of their employment is the the one sentence, but quite meaty definition.
0: Yeah, yeah, I like that. It's quite a uh, packed, like you say, it packs quite a lot in there. So, uh, yeah. so how did they? How did trade unions kind of originate? Originate and when?
1: Um, well, there's there's always been. You know, people have always come together collectively um, about work issues. Um, you know, you can go right back to the Tudor times when there are there are actually legislation dating from I think the time of Henry VIII, certainly Elizabeth I, um, attempting to, to to stop workers combining together um, to to demand wage increases and so forth.
0: Oh, really? Whether you could
1: define those as trade unions is, is another matter, of course. They're no, yeah. not continuous association, so it falls down on the first, first bit <laughs> of the, the definition. But, but you know, the principle is there that people are working together to try and make their working lives better. Um, The first trade unions, as we will begin to recognise them, are sort of right towards the end of the 18th century, beginning of the 19th century, when you start getting... Um, workplace organized um, uh, associations with a sort of longer life coming together. Minor problem in that period that workers combinations uh, were most definitely illegal Um, so you know in in doing that in coming together uh, people were risking quite a lot you know imprisonment potentially certainly fines Um, and it was really quite difficult but you know trade unions weren't just about sort of strikes and and what they said to workers it was partly about what they what they did amongst themselves so you're looking at things like um organizing sick clubs where they would pay out if if um, someone was off was was sick insurance if their tools were, were lost stolen damaged
0: okay um, so quite similar to sort of friendly societies
1: big overlap I mean you know people didn't sort of sit okay. down at the time and say shall we have a trade union or shall we have a friendly society <laughs> they, they were basically saying well what do we need to do to protect ourselves um and some of those things we would recognize as friendly society type um activities and some became trade union type activities and you know quite a lot of the time we're talking about the same organization so it's only later that those begin to separate um, so that you know the, the friendly society of odd fellows or whatever um don't take people out on strike um, and um, the National Union of Mine Workers doesn't really do a lot of the things that that a friendly society would have done or didn't do those things. So yeah, they do separate out in due course. But even today, you know, trade unions still do an element of that sort of thing. Um, it's still a part of what they do. Um, okay. Much less so since the advent of the welfare state over the course of the 20th century and so forth. Um, but it's it's still in there.
0: Okay. So what kind of trades had a trade union to start with? Um, was it very kind of labour intensive um, trades or, or was it more kind of artisan type trades? Or
1: It mostly is in that artisan thing. So you're looking at people like carpenters, um, people with shoemakers, um, people with a skilled trade. Um, as I say, partly it's a defensive type organisation. So one of the things they're trying to do is keep out unskilled labour from the stuff they do. Uh, so, you know, if you're a carpenter, for example, you don't really want any, anyone coming along who's got a hammer and a saw taking over your job. So it's about organising to ensure that actually only, only qualified carpenters, recognised carpenters are doing that work. So there's that defensive element to it. Uh, and that's obviously much easier to, to do and much more necessary when you're looking at a skilled occupation and artisan type occupation, um, than it is with a sort of general labourer type type role, uh, where it's much more difficult to to protect the the you know the uh, what you get for your work and, and how it's organised and so forth. So yeah, very definitely sort of skilled work at the start.
0: Okay. Um, and in fact for
1: a very long time through the 19th century, um, that's the case.
0: Okay. And then, so when you say. Um when you say trade unions to me I tend to think of more political organizations and I tend to think about their relationship with the with the with the labor party um, historically what uh, how how did that yeah start from the beginning <laughs> historically <laughs> how did that kind of emerge that like you know to right, so tra- trade trade unions and
1: politics basically Ooh. so yeah I mean originally obviously trade unions being workplace based uh, they're initially talking to to um individual employers Uh, individual organisations they work for about pay and time off and working conditions and all those sorts of things. Um, But actually, as trade unions become more sort of organised and national bodies later into the 19th century, um, there's a sort of a sense that actually, you know, you can fight every employer one by one to get a pay rate for the job um, or whatever the issue is. But the better way of going about it is by applying pressure in government to say well actually you know um, we would like government to set uh, a national maximum working week of 84 hours or whatever the, the thing might be um, and so trade unions sort of start getting into politics with this realization that you can win um, for your members by getting the law changed or by getting government policy changed and that applies more broadly um, in many cases than if you're trying to win everything employer at a time. So that's okay. initially where it come, comes from. Of course, you know, 19th century, very few workers could vote anyway. Um, <laughs> really, it's not until we get to sort of the 1880s and, and Gladstone's Reform Act there, which adds two, three million um, working men to the electorate, um, that there becomes any point at all in trade unions trying to actually sort of get anyone elected. Um, who would represent them. Um, And Initially, they did that through through the Liberal Party. So, you know, the Liberal Party recognised the need, if it was having lots of working-class voters, um, to have some working-class MPs as well. Uh, So you have these Lib Lab MPs who are really part of the Liberal Party but have connections into the trade unions. And it's not until the early 20th century um, that you start to get proper Labour MPs um, because the electorate has broadened to include working men and in due course women um, uh, and so it becomes it becomes a point to organizing a labor party which organized which represents um, labor and the trade unions
0: yeah that makes a lot of sense so is that so at that point is that where the kind of legalities mm-hmm. about being in a trade union or running a trade union begin to change as well presumably
1: Oh, the legalities sort of changed a long way back and it, but it was a slow process so as I say the Combination Act and various other uh, bits of legislation made it difficult if not impossible um, to organise right up until the 1820s uh, and for that reason actually there are virtually no trade union records before the 1820s okay. um, so if you're a family historian looking for stuff before that date there's nothing to find um, because if there were any records which is unlikely They would have been hidden away, um, you know, up a chimney somewhere because you don't want to provide the authorities with a list of all the people they can then go and arrest.
0: Um, (laughs) How did they, do do we know much about how they communicated um, their actions, especially to people who weren't necessarily highly literate, although they might have been in skilled trades that doesn't, they still might have not had what we'd consider kind of full literacy skills.
1: Yeah, because at that stage, you know, a lot of it was it was people working together in workplaces. Okay. Not really until later that you begin to get national organisation. So word of mouth, branch meetings, um, that that sort of thing. Um, but increasingly, you know, from, from, from the 1830s through, you've got these campaigns against the taxes on knowledge stamp duty on newspapers and so forth um, to make newspapers cheaper. Uh, literacy starts to improve as, as, as that um, is achieved but also even before then you've got this sort of collective readership of newspapers so um, you know every the, your local pub might subscribe to the Chartist Northern Star newspaper and someone every Saturday would, re- would read it out and people would listen to it yeah. um so you know even if you couldn't read yourself you were still getting what was in the newspaper and of course you know they're they're, they're written in quite a different way a lot of them so I think that's... sorry
0: no i was just gonna say i think that's one of the things i really like about the um that kind of um period in time actually is that people do start to become more political even if it's on a even if it's on a very small local scale, even if it's a few mm. men talking in the pub, that you know they're doing that in a way that they weren't necessarily doing in the in the in the kind of Georgian period. And I, I think that's really interesting. Um, yeah, yeah. I think, yeah. I think you can sometimes kind of imagine that your your ancestors were just sat putting up with their lot. And I I don't, but you know, talking to people like you, I start to realise that's actually not really as simple as that. It's not necessarily the case.
1: It's not. You know, even if you go back to the eighteen twenties, early eighteen twenties, where you've got the Luddites. Um, you know, you, you occasionally do that in sort of GCSE history or whatever, and it's yeah. a few blokes who came along and burnt machines. Actually, it wasn't like that. There was a lot more thought to it. There was organisation, there was um, pressure on employers not to introduce this machinery that was going to put them all out of work. Um, and it was only as a last resort that, 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 that some people um, organised um, to attack the machinery and you know, attack the factories. Um and, you know you can understand it what else can they do they're, they're, they're gonna lose their livelihoods their families' livelihoods their whole community's livelihoods um, because you know in that instance for example you know spinning um, or, or weaving um, it's moving over from handloom stuff to automated machinery and you just don't need the people for it um, yeah so and you know that's communicated quite quite widely and it is well understood. Um, So yeah, they were political and it wasn't just a bunch of people saying, oh, don't like these machines and setting fire to them. It was (laughs) it was an organised political activity for a purpose.
0: Sure. Okay. so um, I was going to ask you about how um, you you were saying just before we came into the interview, you were updating me. You had some numbers about how many days were lost um, in strikes now and compared to World War II, which, uh, no, was it World War I? I which World I thought I, was quite fascinating. It. So I didn't yeah. realise that people were still striking to the extent that they were during yeah. the war. And um, I yeah. just wonder whether you'd mind showing those figures. Yeah, sure. I
1: mean, the Edwardian period had been quite um, a, a turbulent period anyway, industrially, and there was a lot more strikes, a lot more unions organising. Um, so in terms of sort of number of days lost to strikes, days lost to strikes is the sort of standard way of, calculating it so what you do is you take the course of a year or whatever the time period is and you say how many people multiplied by how many days those people were on strike so you know it might be a thousand people for 10 days and that's 10,000 days or it might be um, 100 people for 100 days and it's the same same outcome 10,000 so most recent figures I could find were 2018 um, I'm sure there must be more recent but the number of days lost to strikes in 2018, in this country, it was 26,000, um, which might seem quite a lot, but actually, you know, if you work it out in terms of what I was just saying about how you calculate it, if there'd been a one-day civil service strike, that would have been 100,000. Yeah. Um, so 26,000 is, is, is not that many. But if you go back, so 1915, um, even though there was – some sort of industrial truce the TUC had organised a, a, a truce with the government that it wasn't going to have official strikes um, there were still 3 million strike days lost to industrial action in 1915 1916 it halved or it dropped to about 2.5 million it's
0: still I'm a lot considering there's a, a war going a, on isn't was there <laughs> absolutely you know
1: 1917 there were 5.5 million days lost to strikes so you know um,
0: <laughs> yeah
1: there was a lot happening. Um, and, and actually, you know, as you go through a decade beyond, beyond that into the 1920s and you get to the general strike in 1926, which was principally organized around the miners, but other people came out in support of them, there were, let me just read the number, there were 162 million days lost to strikes, um as I say, compared to 26,000 recently
0: that's huge um, isn't it that, just, Yeah, that does put it's
1: so enormous. Even, even when you take into account that there were a million miners in those days it's still an enormous number of, of strike days um
0: so yeah <laughs> so yeah that is huge it really puts into perspective actually about how much power um mm-hmm. how powerful going on strike could be if you had you know those kind of numbers
1: mm-hmm.
0: um so you mentioned the um the general strike there what what what, what was the general strike
1: Okay, so we're looking at 1926. Um, things were pretty tough after the end of the war, as you can imagine. The economy was not in a great state. Um, by 1926, uh, the mine owners, coal mining was still in private hands in those days, um, were attempting to cut wages. Um, so this was a this was going back to that definition. This was about the maintaining conditions of employment. So it was attempting to resist um, those cuts in wages. Um, And there was something called the Triple Alliance between the Miners Federation of Great Britain. So with a million members, the um, National Union of Railwomen, which had a similar number of of members uh, and the other transport unions. So, you know, this was a big alliance of, of, of people. And the idea was that the miners would go on strike to resist this. Um, they would get support from those other unions, uh, and that this effectively would would bring the country to a halt uh, until um, government applied pressure to the mine owners not to cut people's wages. Everyone was out for nine days, you know, nine, nine days of millions of people being on strike. Uh, and you do occasionally see, you know, it comes up in sort of period dramas and it comes up in newsreel and so forth. And you see sort of you know, old Etonians driving buses and uh, uh, <laughs> someone's butler doing some other job that they would never normally have done things. Um, but, but actually, you know, this was a serious, serious situation for the country um, as a whole. Um, and I think, you know, there was this sense that there'd been the Russian Revolution less than a decade earlier. So, you know, there was this sense that there could be something very serious politically um, come out of this. Um, However, um, the railway workers and the transport workers um, said that they couldn't sell this to their members in in the end, that that their members were not prepared to come out and support the miners. And so, after nine days, the national, uh, the general strike was called off, called to a halt. there were supposedly further negotiations, but the the miners stayed out on strike for months after months after month, um, and eventually they 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 lost. You know, the, um, despite everything, their pay was cut, um, which you know terrible position because it wasn't exactly well paid in the first place, uh, yeah. and you know, having that that money cut back, so that was not a great experience, and trade union membership slumped after that. Uh, it really did, and it didn't really pick up again until the Second World War, uh, or certainly until you know the, the economy picked up in the in the run-up to the Second World War.
0: It, when they decided to take strike action for, in nineteen twenty-six, were they basing that on how successful previous strikes had been, or um, what well, kind the, of led to the decision to take that particular action? I guess.
1: I mean, there had never been anything on that scale before. Okay, certainly. Um, And in fact, in some ways, it was odd to have a miners strike that that, that sparked this because the miners, lots of trade unions had had, had long before this had had centralised to a great extent. And, you know, you could share resources across the whole country and make decisions nationally. Um, The miners unions were always much more localised. And all the power rested in, if if not the areas, you know, Scotland or the Midlands or whatever, then or even in the in the in the lodges in the individual mine uh, itself. So it was unusual that you know, it was unexpected really that you would get this sort of dispute from a such a, um, a, a devolved organisation. But yeah, I mean, you know, over over by that stage, over a hundred years there had been all sorts of, of disputes about pay and all sorts of other things. And, and some of them had ended successfully for the union. Some of them had ended unsuccessfully. Um, but in this case, you know, they weren't on the offensive looking for more money. They were on the defensive trying to stop money being taken away from them. So, you know, they possibly thought they had no no option anyway. Um,
0: yeah. Yeah. So if you're going to lose your pay anyway, then, you, then it's kind of yeah. your backs against the wall, listen out. Yeah.
1: Um,
0: so, yeah. Um, could you tell me about some of those other key strikes in the past? So I, I think, am I thinking, for some reason, I want to say London docks.
1: Yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah. Dock strike was a, was a really important one. So um, 1889, um, it started as a, as a fairly small dispute where one employer uh, on the docks, because, again, you know, it was, it was quite segmented. So you had lots of employers in the London docks. Um, It wasn't just sort of one organization that was employing everyone. So uh, one organization, one employer, was refusing to pay the traditional bonus for fast work in unloading a particular ship or whatever. Um, But that sort of spread. um, So um, eventually you get 100,000 Dockers in London alone (laughs) out on strike. Um, And what they're after is what's called the Dockers Tanner. Uh, They wanted sixpence, sixpence a day. Uh, for their work. Um and that strike lasted, oh I've made a note somewhere. Um uh, no I haven't uh, That that strike <coughs> lasted many, many weeks anyway. Um that, that stretched through it. It was eventually brought to an end by um, um mediation by Cardinal Manning, who was the head of the Catholic Church in, in uh England at that point. Um you know a, a significant figure in the East End of London because um you know there, there were so many uh, dockers of Irish ancestry, Irish Catholic ancestry uh, in, in London, in the London's East End at that time. And that was a huge strike and the importance wasn't necessarily so much in the in, 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 in what it immediately achieved um, it was in what it did for trade unionism because out of that you get a whole series of trade unions are formed where it had been fairly ununionized before and unorganised and you get new trade unions emerging from that dispute um, which spread across the country and for the first time really start organising uh, unskilled workers, um, and that does fall back a bit in the years afterwards. But actually, when you get into the twentieth century, those organisations are there and they become the, the basis for things like the Transport and General Workers' Union, which became the biggest union in the country, uh, General Municipal Workers' Union, which was the second biggest in the country. So you know that you, they're laying the foundations there for twentieth-century trade unionism. So, you know, really important dispute because of that.
0: And what what year was the dock? What? Sort 18,
1: of the it was eighteen nine. Eighteen
0: eighty nine. I'm gonna have to go check now because I think I've got some London dock workers in that period. I have to go check my tree now. Um, so, when you when you when you say they were out, out on strike, did that mean they were just sitting at home or uh, and not working, or were they on the streets, kind of protesting, or what did that look no, like? No, the,
1: they were on the streets. There are there are. Photographs, a bit grainy, a bit, bit difficult to make out what's going on, but but of, of huge demonstrations and marches and so forth, um, but also have attempts to raise funds, um, and lots of people from all over the country contributed money to support the dockers and their families, who clearly you know obviously while they were on strike they weren't getting paid, um, and they had to have some money to eat, you know, to buy food to eat. Um, so there was a massive fundraising effort. So, you know, it's not just a case of going on strike, sitting at home, doing nothing and waiting. Actually, you've got to go out and hustle and <laughs> make sure you've got the support, uh, whether that's sort of morally or finan- better still financially.
0: Yeah,
1: um, <laughs> so you can keep the dispute going and keep it at the forefront of people's minds um, and, and, and try and win in that way.
0: And presumably, some of the people that were leading the trade unions, so some of the people that started them or headed them up, were people of slightly better means. I'm just guessing, or slightly more middle class backgrounds, or.
1: Um, Well, on the whole, you know, certainly from that dispute, you've got people like Ben Tillett and Tom Mann. No, they come from the they come from the shop floor, essentially. Okay,
0: so they know exactly what it's like to to not have that money yeah. and how and how difficult that is for the people that they're asking to strike. That's really interesting. Absolutely. I mean
1: they're probably a bit more politicized than most of the workers. So they're involved in some of the sort of early socialist organizations like the Social Democratic Federation or the Independent Labour Party. So they've got a sense of, you know, a, a wider perspective and it's something they've thought more about over a period of time um but no they they are they are of the workers they are they are you know of one with those people that were were, were on strike
0: um, oh, that's were hmm. I, I, I would love to have one of those in my family tree <laughs> <laughs> keep looking <laughs> go really really wide
1: yeah <laughs> <laughs> my 12th cousin
0: 17th yeah does it still count? in law does yes. it count? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, So we've talked a lot about um uh, men striking um, but but what about women and women's trade unionism? And when did when did that kind of start?
1: Yeah, so you do get quite a li- lot of it in sort of Lancashire, Yorkshire, around the um, the textile industries. Yeah. Um, but the really interesting bit actually is is sort of from the 1890s onwards, and you start to get disputes involving small groups. Um, so I mean, you've, you've probably heard of the match women's strike which actually, again, East End of London and a year before the Docker strike. So 1888. Okay. <laughs> so you're starting to get these, these small groups who are in sort of sweated workshops on appalling pay, um, long hours, quite cut off from other groups. But these individual disputes begin to begin to bubble up. Um, and um, you then get the National Federation of Women Workers being formed, attempting to bring those together. If I could talk about the National Federation a, a little bit, um, so it takes us to, to someone called Mary MacArthur, um, who was born in 1880 in Scotland in Hare. Um and her dad was a, a, a grocer, a shopkeeper, um, Tory shopkeeper, uh, which may sound a bit Margaret thatcher at the minute, but, uh, <laughs> but he sent her along to spy on the Shop Assistance Union. Um, she ended up as branch secretary instead.
0: <laughs> go Mary. <laughs>
1: yeah, go, go Mary. Um, uh, and from there, she became active in, in the Independent Labour Party. She became, she was elected to her union's national executive and sort of began to make links elsewhere. She met her husband, who subsequently became an ILP MP or a Labour Party MP, uh, but who died in the flu epidemic in 1918. Um um, and she moved to London with him. Um, so was involved in the Women's Trade Union League. And as I say, it's established the Women, women Worker as a sort of monthly magazine and the National Federation of Women's uh, uh, National Federation of Women Workers in 1906. And that, as I say, started pulling all these disparate smaller organizations and unorganisations, and, and if you like, together into one national body. Um, and it uh, was important in things like the the Chadley heath chainmakers' makers strike uh, in 19 when was that one sorry, let me check that one. Cradley heath 1910 uh, in the West Midlands <laughs> so there, the work was quite separated. So you tended to have the men working in chain making making the big chains, you know, the sort of thing for um, tying ships to the docks and so forth <clears throat> in factories, furnaces, uh, the men. Uh, the women were were working mostly with smaller chains so thinking in terms of i don't know the stuff you might use to keep your gate shut or so forth that sort of size of chain but that was homework um, and it was was um, very very poorly paid so 1910 there was a recommendation from a trade board um for for a pay rise which should have applied to everyone you know the fruits of this political organization that we were talking about earlier Um, But lots of the employers ignored it, so they weren't going to implement it. So, again, there you get a thousand women out on strike, um, organized by the National Women of Work, women workers, uh, and they won that dispute sort of one employer at a time. They gradually rolled them all up until they all started paying the the, uh, recommended rate after 10 weeks, uh, which was a massive two and a half pence an hour um
0: <laughs> these but, people must have had such resilience though to go out week after week after week after week after week and not and, and, and to be fighting yeah. one employer at a time and to for it to be that slow that takes an, an awful lot of grit, I think.
1: It does. And yeah, um, you know, if you're on strike for ten weeks with no no income, that's yeah. that's tough. But yeah. as, as I say America, oh, yeah. I was
0: gonna say, presumably if you're a woman working, then it's because your family needed you to have a woman working. Oh, absolutely. So, you know, yeah. you, during that period you
1: know yeah I mean I think you know probably all of us as family historians were used to this idea that oh women didn't work um, but actually you look back and of course they all worked um, yeah. middle class well off women didn't work um, everybody else did yeah um, so yeah uh, it depends which women you're looking at so Mary MacArthur is a very important in in, in, in National Federation of Women Workers and actually she sort of steered at she 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 opposed the First World War, but actually she was, once it started, I think she was involved in, in uh, for the government, organising women's labour uh, in that um, end of the end of the, the war. She was back organising um, and steered the National Federation of Women Workers into amalgamation with with a couple of other unions uh, and formed um, the National Union of General Workers, um, which is still in existence today as the GMB um, is still a big, big, important union. Um, and sadly ended up dying on the, on the day that the union came into existence, oh. at the age of just 41.
0: Oh, <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Um, so, you
1: know, terrible, really. But um, she, she'd achieved so much in such a short period of time, particularly for women workers. Um, so, yeah.
0: I think what's really interesting about her story as well is that being the, the daughter of a shopkeeper, she didn't necessarily have to join the union or, or, or have that kind of personal incentive to do it so something must have spoken to her she yeah. must have seen something that she thought was morally presumably it's, a moral obligation somehow to, to I do think so,
1: a matter of conviction and, yeah. of, um, um, and of belief that's what she thought was right um, yeah
0: it's interesting I hmm. wish um, she was in my tree
1: um. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't say no
0: actually just
1: mentioning it there's a great recent book about her it only came okay. out recently um, by an author called Kathy Hunt and it's called Writing the Wrong so it's worth having if you're interested in, in, yeah. in Mary MacArthur uh, Writing the Wrong by Kathy Hunt is well worth
0: well worth a look Oh, thank you for that I would definitely put that on my very very long reading list and <laughs> make sure there's a link to it in the blog post that goes out with this video so um so what kind of was the actually before I ask this next question i just remind anyone who's watching feel free to comment with your questions as well but um I know when we were when we were prepping for the interview I um I made a note to ask you about some of your favorite disputes and union stories and uh, and I've just got a one at the line that says ask Mark about music halls
1: <laughs> uh, yes <laughs> so the musical strike of 1907 Ooh. um so again we're in that Edwardian era where, where everything kicks off and you know Lots of women workers in that that industry as well. So you get to 1907 and music halls, um, which are themselves getting more organised. They're are now sort of becoming part of chains. They're not necessarily all separate uh, organisations. Um, and they start putting on extra matinee performances, uh, and they're expecting performers to do those do those for no extra money. Um, and also at the same time, they're attempting to bar their performers from from working for other chains, other music halls. Um, so <laughs> you know which had been you know you hear stories actually I'm, I'm not an expert on music halls and variety, but you do hear these stories of people doing doing a show here and then running up the road and doing the same show at another another music hall, but they're trying to stop that. Uh, they're trying to get more performances out of their performers uh, and not and not pay them any more money for it. So um, you know inevitably that leads to a, to a bit of a dispute. Uh, and it's the Variety Artists Federation. It's called that leads that strike, um, and it began at the Hoban Empire, um, but eventually spread to 22 variety theatres uh, across London. And there's quite a lot of these, yeah. these places, uh, and it's sort of interesting that it attracted. It wasn't just the sort of the, uh, the people in the chorus line. Uh, it did attract support from big names. So, you know, one of the most prominent uh, spokespeople for it was 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 Mary Lloyd, um, who, you know, was known for her sort of risque uh, performances, um, songs like um, I Sits Among the Cabbages and Peas.
0: Um, <laughs> Great.
1: <laughs> um, all entirely innocent, I'm sure. <laughs> but, <you> know,
0: <laughs> Sounds like uh, what my five-year-old would sing.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, she was a huge name, Um at least partly because she did songs like that and was constantly being sort of pulled up before the magistrates and attempting then to convince them that actually there's nothing rude about that peas they're a perfectly normal vegetable. <laughs> so yeah, so he gets those sort of name, you know, those that big name support and and she sort of says, um, you know, we the stars can dictate our own terms. We're not fighting for ourselves but for the poorer members of the profession, earning thirty shillings to three pounds a week. Um, so that's really important important sort of support you're getting if she won't perform then the music halls are stuffed basically yeah. um, and, and and they did won that they they won an agreed minimum wage and maximum working hours um both for performers and, and people um off stage so that was a that was quite a nice little strike you also get others from the same period and just after the first world war so there was a a, a barber's strike again in london um, where all the barbers went on strike for more money um, um, they would do things like um, when strike breakers were brought in to try and provide services, they would go around, round up the hairiest men they could find and make sure they all queued up for a haircut. So they'd keep, keep these <laughs> people busy for you know, doing a, a tough haircut for the next hour oh, and a half or whatever. <laughs> um, and again, they, they won that dispute. But it was said that the papers loved that one. Because certainly, their cartoonists did, and there are newspaper cartoons if you look back to that period of of, um, illustrating the strike and people's hair growing beards growing longer and longer. Um, Yeah,
0: they just come out of the lockdown.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely, yeah, yes. We're all used to it now. It's how we all looked last year, but.
0: I was going to ask you about the press actually in a second, but I've just had somebody pop in with a question if it's okay to pop that up on screen. So um they were, Brian is just asking, is it right that the Farm Laborers Union was started by the Methodist Church?
1: Um I think it's fair to say lots of farm labourers were non-conformists of one kind or another, including Methodists. So particularly if you look at um Uh, Toll Paddle, the Toll Paddle Martyrs, who in the 1830s um, were all transported off to Australia. Um, I mean, we remember that as being for organising a trade union. Actually, it was for administering an illegal oath. But that was really that was part of the sort of the joining thing for a trade union. So it was in in reality, it was about trade unionism. And they were all um, non-conformers. I think they were Methodists. So there was that strong um, connection there. The Methodist Church itself didn't. Um, the Methodist Church was quite um, anti-political activity. Um, it, it, it you know looked to God for salvation, not to not not well, to
0: strike. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, but, but you know. All, all through the 19th century, well into the 20th century, there's been a, a very strong uh, Methodist uh, and nonconformist tradition through into trade union and labour politics. Um, I mean, you know, the strongest, actually, actually, the strongest traditions, and it depends which unions you look at, have been in sort of Methodism or in Catholicism. So <laughs> if the Church of England just misses out in the middle, you know, that's the, this, this idea of the Tory party is the, the Church of England. No, Church of England is the Tory Party at prayer, um, but the Nonconformists, the Catholics, were, were the trade unionists essentially. So, yeah, there's there's an element of truth in it. Um, uh, but certainly later on, um, it's someone called Joseph Arch who organises the Agricultural Workers' First Union or First endu- Enduring Union in the 1870s. Um, I, I don't really know his biography. Um, I wouldn't be in the slightest bit surprised if he, if he came from a from a Methodist and nonconformist background as well.
0: It's interesting as well because I quite often associate nonconformist areas with mining as well. So, uh, you yeah. know, whale, uh, yeah, I've got a lot of Welsh ancestry, and a lot of my Welsh ancestors, like a lot of Welsh, were nonconformists,
1: yeah. and a lot of
0: them were miners, you know, so you kind of almost associate it with hand in hand, which is quite interesting. Yes. Um, yeah. So um, you you were saying there about the caricature in the press, just moving a step um, backwards, but great question. Thank you, Brian. Um, and um, what kind of what was generally what was the kind of press reaction to strikes? And, and or presumably it varied depending on the strike and over time.
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean generally, the, the, the sort of people who own newspapers are the same sorts of people who own factories or own yeah. coal mines or whatever so so um, at heart they're not necessarily terribly sympathetic. Um, but certainly in the early days, you know you you where well, you're looking at uh, a fairly strong local radical press, you would get more support there. Um, and it's really only once the, the press itself starts to build up and become more uh, more of more big business that you get a lot of hostility to, to trade unionism and so forth um certainly you know by the time you get to um the general strike it's there is there is sort of united opposition to trade unions and strikes and things but one of the things actually that the general strike did was it stopped all newspapers from publishing there were throughout the general strike period of that nine days there were only two two trade uh, sorry two newspapers published one uh was published by the government uh, and it was edited by winston churchill um, and the other one was was published by the TUC. Um...
0: Okay, yeah, so yeah yeah that if you just reminded me actually a long long time ago and I've completely forgotten about this until you were talking. I had a client who from uh, who had um, uh, Sheffield ancestors and one of them was a um, a, a publican who um, was also in the a, a trade union member or sympathetic to the trade unions. Um, And there was an incident where um, some strike breakers were pulled into the pub and and quite badly beaten up and it it went to to court and press. And um, and, and obviously the newspaper took a very dim view of um, the people that had been violent. But but then when you looked across newspapers, there were different variations of the story. And it was interesting. But it just reminded me that it's always worth um, looking at who printed or who published the newspaper, which you can always find. Um. On, the, yes, on either yes. on the first or the last page of the, the paper and then going and seeing if you can find out who that person is either just by googling them or checking on the census or whatever because you'll yeah. you know like you say you'll get their political you might get hints at why they're writing it with a certain angle potentially. So yeah, yeah you know,
1: editors and proprietors have their own political views. Yeah. Um and they will they will differ, they will vary. Um on the whole they tend to be pro establishment rather than pro worker um because they're business owners
0: you know (laughs) yeah yeah of course yeah i think sometimes you forget that actually um okay um so we've um talked about the um the the kind of earlier history of strikes but obviously i think one of the most famous strikes is the is the kind of minor strikes in the 1970s and how do they kind of compare to their earlier counterpart (coughs) strikes um and and yeah. generally when you when you talk about strikes again, I tend to think of strikes failing. Um and um I don't know that's being a child of the 80s. Um yeah. so kind of linked to that is my question is how how successful have trade unions be if you trying to take a wider picture of them.
1: Yeah. Well, um I mean I'll come on to the, the 70s minor strikes in a, in a second because they are sure. quite different to 1926 and to 1984, mm-hmm. 85. Um, but 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 just generally, I, when we were talking earlier, we talked about, well, you know, have trade unions been successful? Can you point to something where they've succeeded? And, and in some ways, it's quite difficult because a lot of it takes place with individual employers. So there's, you know, the, 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 over the years, there have been thousands of small or large strikes, um, some of which have, have, have succeeded in part, some of which in whole. Some of which have failed dismally, um, so it's difficult to sort of point to, to individual ones and, and know all of them. Um, and you know, equally, um, if a union goes in because there's uh, a danger of redundancies, and the union manages to negotiate down the number of redundancies or to get the employers to do something other than that, then you can claim that as a success. But it's very difficult to sort of surface that and say that's what that's that's a, a, a that's a win for trade unions. One thing you can point out though, is there's something called the union wage dividend. So it's it's been calculated for years and years and years. Uh, and you can say, well, looking at workers uh, in union organized jobs and companies and comparing their wages to workers in non-unionized jobs and companies, how do the wages compare? And those consistently, and not just in this country, been a dividend for for union organized workers. They've always earned more.
0: Okay, um, that's interesting.
1: So, I mean, at one point, it was something like twenty five percent more. Yeah. Um, and I think you know, as, as unions have have weakened over the decades, um, that percentage has come down. But it's still there. It still exists. So there is there is you know a really tangible thing you can point at and say, yes, that's that's happened. But also with the move towards sort of politics and attempting to influence things through politics, um, you know, you can look at things like the national minimum wage. or These are just recent ones. National minimum wage, the right to paid maternity leave. Um, um, I think um, the right to be accompanied um, at, a, at a hearing with your employer, um, which is as recent as 1999 as a legal right. <laughs> um, it was implemented by the Blair government. Okay. Um, and a, a lot of these things are pushed for by trade unions and they're things that they might have won in in one or two places, one or two workplaces, um, but then they want to generalise them.
0: Okay, so, so it kind of has like a snowball effect.
1: Yeah, you, you know, these people in this organisation or this industry are benefiting from paid maternity leave. Actually, so should everyone. Let's make it the law. So all those things, um, you know, people can point to and say, well, that's unions... Unions sort of didn't legislate for paid maternity leave or whatever, but but without them, it's difficult to believe they would have happened. Um, so, yeah, there are all of those things. Um, and There's something else I was going to say, and I've gone completely blank. While
0: was. <laughs> I'll come back to you later, don't worry.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, there are things you can point to and say that. Oh, we were going to talk about the... The, the minor strikes in the 70s, yeah, weren't they? Yeah,
0: and how they compare to earlier, yeah. Yeah,
1: and, and that is, it is relevant in terms of being able to point to, to successive trade unions because um, unlike 1926, unlike 1984, they weren't defensive strikes, they were on the offensive. So by the early 1970s, um, miners um, had dropped from always being in sort of the top four or five industrial occupations in terms of pay, they dropped way down the scale, um, you know, to where were they? Um, oh, they, were, they were below average for industrial workers by that point, so below halfway. Uh, but there'd been no national strikes, uh, no official strikes since 1926. So, oh, okay. um, you know, things have gradually built up slowly bit by bit, but then they, they'd they fallen over the, uh, by 1970. Um but also the number of miners had fallen. So, um, you know, there'd been a million miners by the 1950s. There were 700,000. By 1970, there were only 290,000. Um, so the number had fallen. Um, but as I say, you know, the issue was about pay. The issue was about wanting more money to restore their position in the earnings league table. And so there was a strike in 1972 um, in January and February, always a good time for, for a miner's strike um, because what do you heat the country with, what do you run the country on, or certainly in the 1970s, but coal. So you know, there's no point striking in July and August because it doesn't have any impact whatsoever. <laughs> uh, so there, there was <coughs> excuse me, two, two-month strike um, and in the end they, they, they got a pay offer which they accepted that took them right back up to the top of the, the Wages League table for industrial workers. Um, 1970s, lots going on in the economy. It was all over the place massive inflation, massive, um, uh, you know, the, the energy crisis and so forth. So um, there was a lot of turbulence. And as early as 1973, um, miners' wages have fallen back again relatively. Um, they were way down the league table again. Uh, they were offered 7 point, uh, 7%, um, which, you know, if you remember, well, oh, no, you won't remember, but <laughs> you may remember. <laughs> uh, inflation was way up into double figures uh, in the 1970s, you know, way up. Um, so they rejected that pay offer, uh, uh, they went on strike, uh, and that's the strike in, in, in ni- late 1973, early 74, uh, that people remember um power cuts and the three-day week, three-day week to save fuel. You couldn't run the factories if you didn't have the fuel. Um, uh, and, you know, this was this was because it was a, such an important thing, because it was a national thing, because it was a nationalized industry. This was a dispute between the government, Ted Heath's government uh, and the National Union of Mine Workers, effectively. Um, Ted Heath went to the country February 1974, general election, um, on the question, who governs? Uh, and the, question, the answer came back from the electorate, not you. Um, <laughs> so um, the incoming Labour government under Harold Wilson uh, increased their pay by 35% that, as soon as they came into office and by another 35% a year later. Um, so you know, if you're looking at successful industrial disputes, then getting 70% or so over a period of two years is probably quite a successful outcome for a, for a, for a strike. Um, especially if it only lasts a few weeks
0: yeah absolutely. Um,
1: really. yeah so that that was a, a great success for the for the mine workers um
0: 1984
1: we were talking about um you know memories of it it, it having a it being a, a defeat for the for the mine workers it certainly was um but again we're back on to a defensive thing by then this time that wasn't about pay it was about pit closures uh and arthur scargill who was the president of the National Union Mine Workers, said that there was a government plan to reduce the number of pits um, to, a, to a small number. I don't I can't remember the numbers of pits there were and how many he said they were going to be afterwards um, and that, you know, this would devastate mining communities. Uh, and so there was, uh, you know, the, the miner strike, which started in March 1984, uh, went on for an entire year uh, for many, many miners um again they didn't they had some support in in other trade unions but not many other trade unions came out in support of them uh, industrially uh so that strike dragged on essentially by the end the miners had to go back to work um they lost that dispute um and of course it was said at the time you know absolute nonsense of course there's no plan to, to close the mines down you know what would the country do um <laughs> and uh we now have no coal mines, uh, no deep coal mines in this country and hadn't had for years. Um so you know, there, there was a, a plan to close down the coal mines. The plan there was to to use coal brought in from from cheaper foreign producers, uh, and to break the power of the National Union of Mine Workers, particularly, you know, that they wanted revenge after 1973, 74. Um, not to put too fine a point on it. Um
0: yeah, and it's interesting because I I'm a child of the early 80s, so I don't remember any of I, I don't remember any of this, and I don't no. tend to look at more recent history. I tend to forget about yeah. it and go yeah. further back. But I do remember growing up. Uh, I do remember people talking about it, you know, when I was growing up, and I remember things like when the Billy Elliot film came out, and um, yeah. uh, you know, my mum would would say, Oh yeah, well, I remember that, and, and and I'm not from a mining background, I'm and, mm. and I have a southern family as well but it's um it's certainly an event that i think is really etched on a lot of people's um collective consciousness um you know it's quite kind of, yeah. it's a big event
1: absolutely so, huge and and you know you sort of forget how many people were involved and how widespread mining was you know there, there were there so from a for a southern background so am I, you know there were, there were coal mines in kent there was yeah. a kent coalfield okay. um which you forget about, there was, and before that, I think it was dry by then, but there was, there was, a, there was a Somerset uh, coal field, <laughs> uh, Somerset miners. Um, but, you know, huge numbers in sort of South Wales, in the northeast of England, in Yorkshire, in Nottinghamshire, Leicestershire, uh, the northwest. So, you know, it was, and whole communities were built around the pit. You know, it wasn't just that, you know, 5% of people who worked in this town were, were in the coal mine everybody was yeah um, yeah
0: yeah because so, it's so locational isn't it you know it yeah, was, yeah yeah it was so, I mean, that, other trades
1: yeah I and mean, that was one of the big things it, it just decimated entire communities mm. with no plan on how to deal with that it was just it's closed go and find another job um
0: <laughs> yeah 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 okay so Going a little bit further back if you find or how would you how would you even know whether your ancestor may have been in a trade union?
1: Right well it's it's worth remembering that you know for all the millions of people that have been in trade unions it's always still been a minority pursuit so by 1979 which was the peak year of trade unionism actually half the workforce 10 million people were in trade unions but still only half the workforce and that was the absolute peak so you go back a a few years, a few decades, a century or so, and and although there's large numbers, you know, quarter of a million people in this union, half a million, and that seems like a lot, but it's still a minority. So it's not guaranteed that that they will have been. Um, I'm. It's it's difficult if you, if you believe that they may have been. Um, it's a case of tracking down the right union, the union that might be. Incredibly, one they remember of and then finding out if that union existed at the right time and if so where those records are so i one thing that really helps is as i say you know starting with the right union um, I've, I've got a website actually called unionancestors.co.uk which I don't really do much with. It's just created and it sits there. But what it does do is it lists five thousand trade unions that have existed at one point. Wow,
0: huge numbers. Huge yeah, numbers.
1: Yeah, many of them were very local or only existed for a short time. But you know, have a look at that. If if you're, but it's worth thinking laterally. You know, if your ancestor worked was was in shoemaking. Um, you can't just look up shoemaking. You've got to look up boot making and clog making. and okay. um,
0: And presumably location plays a part as well.
1: Yeah, location and time. Um, so I think, you know, the, the, is, is, it, you want to draw up a sort of basket or a list of, of unions that look vaguely possible. Yeah. Uh, and, and then um, track down a book called The Historical Directory of Trade Unions, no, I right. can't get it on the screen. There
0: we go.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um, there are there are six volumes of that. Um, and they each have, it's it's sort of little biographies of trade unions. Okay. Um, so if you've got sort of six unions that you think are possible, actually if you can find a copy of that in a library somewhere, um, you need to look at each of those six and establish is it in the right geographical area and did it exist at the right period. Because you know, it's, it's great finding a union, you think absolutely that's perfect, uh, and then you discover that it, it became defunct 50 years before your ancestor was born. You know, it's um, not, not very helpful. <clears throat> so, you know, you can narrow it down from that. When you've narrowed it down, it's then, well, what records are there that might be still in existence where there might be stuff about my ancestor? Um, and you need to think out what records there are. So, there are, I mean, trade union journals is a great one. If ever you were active in a trade union then the chances are you probably got a name check somewhere in the, in your okay. years of, of membership doing something um, even if you weren't particularly active even when you retired or something you probably got a name check somewhere so <clears throat> you possibly appeared in that um, for some unions there are things called admission books which were when you joined they entered your name into a huge leather leather bound ledger and kept that and that would have recorded a bit of information about you there were some membership lists um not many not many unions had a central membership list um some of them did um and it's worth worth checking those and those also record things like whether you claimed against the the um, um various amount allow- you know things that you could claim for you could claim for things like if your wife died some unions had a Uh, a payment a sort of insurance um, life insurance thing for family members there are all sorts of other sort of returns to branches to national unions there's um branch records really haven't really survived but uh, there are national reports and things um so it's worth thinking about what those records are uh and also where you might find them so there are some limited amounts of records i say limited you know there's vast numbers but into overall terms, it's it's it's, it's a small proportion uh, on the Find My Past website. Okay. Um, so there yeah. are some some um, digitised records there from trade unions. So people like I think the Associated carpenters and Joiners from the UK. I
0: Yeah, I think that is on there as well. And I've got a feeling yeah. I want to say something to do with lighting as well. <laughs> Just going off the top of my head. Yeah, there is a, a few.
1: Yeah, but those records are basically they've come from the Modern Records Centre at the University of Warwick, and okay. that probably is the most important repository for trade union records in the country. And they have got vast, vast amounts. And they are, they are bu- busy digitizing them like mad um, and okay. have been all through lockdown. Okay. Um, but there, there are, so much, <laughs> there are so much to, to, to digitize that it's a small proportion of what they've got. And I know they're still working on, on that. I was up there a few weeks ago and chatting to one of their archive archivists Uh, about how many thousand pages she could get through a day. (laughs) Um, So there's a lot going on. The Modern Records Centre at Warwick University, very important. Um, In Manchester, or Salford, sorry, Um, in Salford you've got the Working Class Movement Library, which again has lots of of, of union records, some of them digitised, some of them just in the library to be be accessed. other places that are worth looking at, um, the Labour History Archive and Study Centre at the People's History Museum in Manchester, um, which actually also has an amazing collection of trade union banners. It's the National Centre for Trade Union Banners, and wonderful things to look at. Uh, the TUC Library Collections at the London Metropolitan University. And that's got pretty much all of the trade union journals. So okay. again, that's an important, you get sort of different records have gone off to different places. Um, and, and that's a, a really important collection. Um, and actually there is a TUC website called, uh, well it's the URL is unionhistory.info uh, and that's got a lot of records on there, including the records of the, the, the match workers strike, um, which is really interesting stuff and worth a look. Bishopsgate Institute in London, National Libraries of Scotland and Wales and so forth, and local archives as well. Okay. But, but Certainly, you know Warwick and the Working Class Movement Library in Salford are really, really important centres uh, for for holding records. Um, but it's, it's it's sort of tragic that a lot of stuff has just been destroyed, uh, hasn't survived, and so forth. But
0: you know, <laughs> I mean, it's always worth checking the newspapers as well. I think because I think it yes. really certainly. Yeah, uh, and and family memorabilia as well. I've got a client at the moment whose um, whose ancestor was in the uh, trade unionist, and they and he only knows that because he's got the little card that he was originally issued with the rules about keeping it secret. <laughs> Yes. Yeah, which is uh, with his photo and yeah it's amazing so um
1: that's great i mean if you've got a card if, if you've got you're a lucky like that, that,
0: yeah. that, that sort yeah of
1: short circuits a lot of that early early research that's fantastic it takes you right to the place you need to be
0: yeah um, yeah that's yeah. that's kind of genealogy gold though isn't it but it yeah <laughs> <laughs> but i'm gonna go have a hunt though because i i know i I'm, I'm absolutely sure i have east london um uh, doc doc workers and i just need to check what year what years yeah. they were there but i'm pretty sure it would have covered that period um yeah. so i will be doing i will be taking you up on all your hints
1: <laughs> well, <laughs> going, having thing. a little
0: look and um i will make sure that all those links are included in a, in a blog post that goes out along with this so that people don't have to scribble Brilliant. them down whilst they're listening if they're catching up catching up on this on their podcast or, or on YouTube. Yeah. Um, so before you go, Mark, because I'm conscious that I've I've kept you just slightly over the time, um, and you've been really generous with your time. So thank you. Um, awesome. Where can people go and find you and, and uh, your work? Just remind everybody. Um, so, probably the easiest
1: place to find me is through my Chartist Ancestors website. So that's chartistancestors.co.uk. Um, as I say, there is also the, the unionancestors.co.uk website that I that I have. Um, I'm on Twitter um, under my name as slash Mark Crail, um, but I'm also the web editor and social media officer for the for the um, Society for the Study of Labour History, so um, you can look us up on Twitter or on the uh, online for that as well. Okay. Um,
0: Brilliant. Well, thank you very much, Mark, for joining me again. Once again, I really, really enjoy talking to you. I love this kind of working class history. I find it really fascinating, Um probably because I can relate to it a bit more. So having working my ancestors. <laughs> so yeah. So thank you very, very much for joining me and for letting me waffle at you. <laughs> <Thank> <laughs> Great you. enjoyed it. Thanks. Bye. Bye. <laughs>